Hello there, this is Pastor Jeremy Howard at Orchard Hills Bible Church. Wanted to let you know before we get into this first class of a new short series on church history that we actually had a bit of an issue with this class. Uh, not the people in it. People were great. They did a, they did a great job. But uh, the, the recording of this class is what I should say. We uh, didn't realize that the laptop that we used to capture the audio here was not plugged in, and so it ran out of battery, but about three-quarters of the class got recorded. So wanted to share it with you. Just know that the class gets cut off while I'm talking about Clement of Rome, and we actually don't get the recorded version of the substantive conversation that we had over his letter, First Clement, which was written to the Corinthians. And that's too bad. But uh, you get everything up to that point. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Hope you enjoy the lesson. Well, why should we study church history? Why, why should we do that? Um, there are several reasons. One is uh, this is kind of like doing a, a study on your own family, right? This is your spiritual family. Some of you may be into genealogy and studying that kind of thing, where you came from. This is very similar to that looking back to see how we got here. You know, there are lots of people who roam this earth who don't really know how they got to where they are spiritually as far as where their beliefs uh, came from. And of course, ultimately, our beliefs come from the Bible, and the Bible is all you need for life and godliness. But it is very interesting, isn't it, to look back through history and see how the articulation of doctrine in the Bible developed over the course of time, and to see what happened, to see how God was saving people and preserving and building his church. And so to get our, our minds um, kind of in the right place this morning, I want you to start thinking about life after the apostles. The apostles died out at the end of the first century, toward the end of the first century. You can actually read about some of that. If you go to uh, the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 12, you see the death of James, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Of course, before that, there was Judas, who uh, didn't make it very far, of course, into uh, his tenure as a disciple of Christ, and never really was like an apostle, but Matthias replaced him. And then you, you get the death of uh, James in chapter 12. You have Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the apostle. You have these things happening in the book of Acts. But as you get to the end of Acts, and especially in, in history as you get to the end of the first century, you see the apostles dying off. And they weren't being replaced with other apostles. There was no assumption that that would even happen. You'll see that in church history. No one who was alive in the first century outside of the apostles was writing about, we need to replace these apostles. That never happened. There was never any kind of thought that that would happen. There was an understanding that the apostles held a, a special office, a particular office, that they, they were a limited number that were called for a specific duty, basically. And uh, I want you to think about, as the apostles died off, what it was like in the church. And you can use the Corinthian church as a test case. We've learned quite a bit about the Corinthian church over the last couple of years. They were a pretty messed up church, weren't they? You could say they were a hot mess, the Corinthians. And that was while the apostles were alive. That's why they, they could still receive letters from the apostles that were inspired revelation, that were authoritative, written to them. But how do you think they did when the apostles passed on? <laughs> yeah, we're actually going to find out later this morning about that particular church. But 
But yeah, they, they're a weak church, and many of the churches were in that type of situation. Weak and immature believers, maybe just barely saved, you could say. And they were to go on with their testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ and to grow in Christ. Now add to that situation persecution. And add to that situation just general cultural pressure that they are to conform to the the culture of the day, to declare Caesar is Lord. Or they'll get their head lopped off. How will weak and immature Christians fare in such a situation? Well, we actually have some documentation on, on how that went. But I want us to turn together to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because as we think about this, we can come to an understanding that only God could hold this church together, couldn't he? Only God could cause his church to grow in such a situation where you have weak and immature Christians amid persecution, from a worldly perspective, just ready to be scattered. If you're just thinking in your flesh, anybody could come along and just squash them like a bug and just cause them to to scatter away. But they didn't. It's by God's grace they hung together. Let's look at Paul's instruction to Timothy. This is the last letter from Paul's life. So as we're thinking about the apostles dying out, and what the church was like as Paul was dying and the other apostles were dying. Look at how Paul instructs this young pastor. Would someone read 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2? Who can read that for us? 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Who's got it? You got it. Okay, go ahead. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right. So Timothy's marching orders here are to take what was given to him from not only Paul, but the other apostles and from Jesus Christ himself, to take what was given to him and to instruct others who would be able to instruct others still. And that's what was happening in the early church even when there was so much immaturity and persecution and everything else going on. Turn over to chapter 4, same book, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Someone read verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Who's got that? Go ahead, Sarah. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and under Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove All right. So Paul here is, is talking to Timothy and giving Timothy a warning about what's going to happen in the future. We know, of course, that there's a great element of this in our culture today. We know that people will be turning away from the truth more and more. They'll have ears that want to be tickled more and more as the world goes on. And leading up to the coming of Christ, it's going to get very bad. Yet there's also an element here where this was happening in Timothy's day too, wasn't there? That's why Paul's bringing it up. 
He's solemnly charging Timothy to preach the word even amid a degenerating culture, even amid a a crumbling culture. It's kind of like uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, those first 14 verses or, uh, you know, whatever they are, 13 verses, where we recognize that a lot of that's going to take place intensely at the end, but at the same time, That stuff's kind of going on all the time. We're going through birth pangs all the time in the world where things are are getting worse and worse and worse. And sometimes we come out of the valley and things seem pretty good in the culture, but it's not too much longer and we go back down, don't we? And so that's the nature of the culture. And the church is now off and running. Paul is writing this final letter and saying to Timothy, who's not an apostle, Timothy, who doesn't work the signs of an apostle. Timothy, who doesn't get new revelation from God. Timothy, who doesn't write scripture. Timothy, who's a pastor. He's getting this message from an apostle saying, carry on, good soldier. Take what's been given to you. It's sufficient. Take what's been given to you and teach others. And this is the mechanism that God's going to use to grow the church. Now, in this period in early church history, because we're going to be looking at today actually Uh, before we even get to the year 100. We're not even going to get to the year 100 today, so this is really early, early church. But we're going to examine vital events, vital people in this time period, and we're looking to see how Christ protected his church. We're looking to see how Christ built his church post-apostles. This is called the Age of the Apostolic Fathers. Sometimes you'll hear that in books if you're reading about church history. This is the Age of the Apostolic Fathers. But these people we're looking at, they weren't apostles, so it's kind of a strange name to be given this age. They never claimed to be apostles, but it's the age of the apostolic fathers. And I'm going to be quoting today uh, from this work called the Apostolic Fathers. This is a bunch of, uh, a collection of works from that time period. This is the Lightfoot translation. J.B. Lightfoot translated this a number of years ago. Uh, it says on the back that it was $2.95 when it came out in 1970. I got it from Pioneer Book with an extra discount at probably around $5. Um, but most places you find this book, and I really like Lightfoot's translation, it'll be about $15 to $20 on Amazon. But I recommend you get it up, uh, get it for your library. If this is something you're interested in, church history, the Apostolic Fathers is very important. This includes uh, works of the people we're going to be talking about. It also includes the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, which are two ancient texts that get brought up a lot when people talk about missing books of the Bible. Well, just buy them for yourself and read through them and see what you think. Um, Don't be scared. So the Apostolic Fathers is something I'll be quoting from here this morning. And I want want to just read to you his summary on the back, just a few sentences. J.B. Lightfoot says, The Apostolic Fathers are significant to church history and in the history of doctrines. Anyone interested in the field of religion desires an acquaintance with these writings. This volume represents an attempt to give the writings of the Apostolic Fathers the wide distribution which they deserve. A complete, unabridged edition of the best translation of the Apostolic Fathers is here made available in one convenient, reasonably priced volume. Again, $2.95. That was quite reasonable, even for 1970, I'd say. Uh, But now it's a little more than that. And as we go through... um, What we're going to look at this morning, you see on your sheet, we're going to be talking about the Didache and Clement of Rome. But as we examine uh, both of these uh, 
things, one's a person and one's a, a document, so I don't know what to call it, uh, both of these things, uh, I want you to listen for their source of authority, okay? So you can write that down. This is something I want you to be listening for. Their source of authority and their articulation of doctrine. Two things, their source of authority and their articulation of doctrine. You'll never hear, with the people we're looking at and the documents we're looking at, you'll never hear a claim to Scripture. You'll never hear someone saying, I'm an apostle and this is the Lord's commandment, like Paul did. You don't hear that from these guys. They, they didn't have that understanding. But instead, you'll see them quoting Scripture as their authority. You see that over and over and over again. And you'll never see them saying on core Christian doctrines, we just don't know. There's no way to know. Believe what you want to believe because we just don't know. You don't see that. You actually see some pretty, what we would might consider, advanced articulation of Christian doctrine. And we'll see a couple examples of that here this morning, okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is the Didache. That's how you say that word. It's not did ache, but it's the Didache. And, uh, you know, you can, you can say to someone later today, if someone says, how did Jeremy do in Sunday school? You can say, he did a K, all right? The Didache. <laughs> and it is a, an early church manual. The Didache was an early church manual. That's a, a good way to sum that up. And we'll talk more about what that means here in a moment. The origins of the Didache are a bit uncertain. Uh, some people will say the apostles themselves wrote the Didache. But there's no evidence for that. That doesn't seem likely. It's quite likely, though, that people who were associated with the, the apostles put this together. It's unknown how widespread an influence the Didache was. I can't say this was like the standard in Jerusalem, but nowhere else. I don't know. That may be the case. I don't know. You could say it maybe had wide-ranging influence. You could say that it was a guideline that some people disagreed with. It's a guideline that everyone held too strongly. I don't know. But it did survive uh, centuries after the uh, apostles died. We have evidence that it was used in the 4th century, all the way up to the 4th century, before it kind of faded out of significance. But it's very early, very early. This is before the year 100. It's in the 90s A.D., that this book was put together, or this manual was put together. And it's a guide that was used to understand how people in the church should conduct themselves. Perhaps it was born out of a desire that leaders in the early church had for uniformity. We'll see some of that where it's like, okay, they were just wanting churches to all be on the same page with how they did things. There was a bit, there seems that there's a bit of a desire for uniformity and consistency in church practice. Because you see on your sheet there, we're going to talk about baptism and communion and a few other things. And it's pretty detailed in its description of how those things should be done. It goes beyond what Scripture says in telling people how those things should be done. But the book is basically divided into two parts, or the manual is basically divided into two parts. There's part one, which talks about the two ways. There's a way of life and a way of death. There's a way of life and a way of death. And between these, these two ways that it talks about, there's a lot of overlap. One is just saying things, you should do things this way, and the other is saying, don't do these other things. But basically, when it talks about the way of life and the Didache, the instruction to these early Christians is pretty simple. You should love God and love your neighbor. It, it's, it's evident by this early church document that it was very important for these new Christians, this first generation of Christians, 
to hold up the simple commands that we have from the Lord Jesus to love God and love our neighbor. I say simple, it's simple to articulate, but hard to live, right? Um, But these two basic components that sum up everything that life is about, to love God and love neighbor. And then it goes on to describe what that means, and it's basically a summation of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very similar to the Gospel of Matthew, the Didache is, where through the way of life, he'll go through and talk about uh, the same things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a focus on mindful and intentional living for God before the world, to be very mindful and intentional about the way that we live. And there's a great focus, too, on loving well, that we love one another well and love others well. And there's a, there are lots of lists in the Didache when it talks about the way of life and the way of death. I thought this section was particularly interesting uh, you'll, as I read through this list, you'll hear some of the instructions that sound very familiar, and you'll also hear some that sound just interesting, all right, in one way or another. So I'll read to you a section from the Didache talking about uh, the way of life and the way of death. And uh, this is going to sound a little King Jamesy, by the way, because remember what I said about Lightfoot? When did this translation come out? 1970. And the Bible at that time, you basically had the King James, okay? And so anything that was Bible-related, that was translated from early on, typically was translated into King James-type English. That's the only, way it's, the only reason why it sounds this way, because it was originally written in Greek, all right? But here's a section from the Didache talking about the ways of life and the ways of death. Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not corrupt boys. Thou shalt not commit fornication. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not deal in magic. Thou shalt not, or thou shalt do no sorcery. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Pretty interesting, huh? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Thou shalt not perjure thyself. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not speak evil. Thou shalt not cherish a grudge. Thou shalt not be double-minded nor double-tongued. So some familiar ones in there and then some interesting ones, like perhaps they were dealing with particular issues at that time that needed to be said. Sorcery, abortion, things of that nature. Okay. And then the way of death, when it's described in this book, the way of death It goes on to talk about astrology. I thought that was pretty interesting too. The evils of astrology, which has been around for a very long time. Anybody who's pro-astrology will typically be quick to tell you how ancient that practice is. Well, the Didache says, don't engage in astrology. The Didache says, that's idolatry. Don't do such a thing. It says that lying, of course, theft, gossip, divisiveness, self-exaltation, these are all sins. It's the way of death. But interestingly, it also goes on to say that eating meat offered to idols is the way of death. It's a sin. Now, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, what was Paul's conclusion about meat offered to idols? Idols, not things. It's a matter of conscience. Yeah. An idol is nothing. It's a matter of conscience. If your conscience doesn't allow you, don't do it. It is sin for you to do it. But if you're free to do it, and you feel free to do it, then do it. And if you go to someone's house, don't ask for conscience's sake. Just eat. Well, the Didache goes on to say, no, it's a sin. Don't do it. 
What a good reminder that this is not Scripture that we're studying, right? The Didache is not Scripture. And we're going to see some more of that where we say, oh, okay, yeah, that's not Scripture. It also was quite clear, this seems to be another problem of their time, the Didache is very clear on being on guard against taking advantage of others. It actually talks about the way that you can tell true teachers from false teachers is how often they're going to want to stay around and bum off of you, basically. If they want to stay for a long time and eat your food and not do anything to contribute, false teachers. Interesting standard, isn't it? Probably a good standard, isn't it? Yeah. And so um, that must have been something they were, they were dealing with. Well, now as we, again, get ourselves <laughs> in the right headspace that this isn't scripture, I want to talk about part two of the book, and then I'll stop for thoughts and questions. Part two of the book, where it gives specific instructions about baptism, fasting, communion, feasting, receiving others, etc. For baptism, it gives some, like I say, specific instructions. One of them is, the Trinitarian formula is to be expressed. The Trinitarian formula. What do I mean by the Trinitarian, Trinitarian formula in baptism? Someone know? Baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Good. Where do we find that in Scripture? New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> Andy came to play today. Yeah. Where in the New Testament? Colossians talks about baptism. Doesn't give us that formula, though. John doesn't even have 28 chapters. <laughs> Andy's recovering from sickness. We'll let it slide. All right. Jerry said it. Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28. You had the right chapter. Okay, Matthew 28. At the end of Jesus' great commission, right? He's there with the apostles. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, he gives us that formula there. That's the only passage in the New Testament that gives us that formula. It's a practice that we do, and of course it's good, right? Um, to say that's how we're baptizing somebody. But that's one of the rules for how they were to baptize. Let's continue with their rules for baptism. Not just Trinitarian formula, but... It was to be by immersion. What do we mean when we say by immersion? Yeah, that's right. No sprinkling, no pouring, though there is an exception clause, and I'm going to read it to you here in a moment. But the standard here is by immersion. Into the water they go, out of the water they come. Okay? It's more specific. A third requirement is to be in live water. What do I mean by live water? Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. But also, yeah, not stagnant water that's growing, uh, gross stuff maybe, but somewhere with rushing water. But also not a horse trough that you fill with a hose. <laughs> Again, this isn't scripture here. We're just looking at what they did, what they prescribed. Okay. And uh, let me give you one more, which in certain circles, well, two more actually. In certain circles, this one would be an issue. Um, adults, <laughs> okay? They were baptizing adults as opposed to, yeah. You don't, 
uh, baptize an infant in live running water by immersion, do you? No, you don't. Okay, this was adults, all right? And then uh, <clears throat> finally, oh, yeah, yeah. Finally, this one's pretty interesting. The fifth element is after fasting. Fasting, also infants can't fast, can they? Um, fasting was a prerequisite to the baptism where they required that the baptizee and the baptizer take time to fast, or at least the baptizee. I don't know about the baptizer. And so those were some elements. Now I'll go ahead and read to you that section. It's a kind of a short section that sums all this up. But this is uh, section 7 from the Didache. It says, But concerning baptism, thus shall ye baptize. There you go. Here are your rules. Having first recited all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living, parentheses, running water. But if thou hast not living water, then baptize in other water. And if thou art not able in cold, then in warm. So cold, you can add that to the list of requirements. Cold running water was the standard. But if thou hast neither, then pour water on the head thrice in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let him that baptizeth and him that is baptized fast. So it is both of them. And any others also who are able. And thou shalt order him that is baptized to fast a day or two before. That was just the way they did it in the early church. Okay, Again, this isn't scripture. We're just studying history here, aren't we? Fasting. He mentioned fasting there, or they mentioned fasting in reference to to baptism. This is pretty interesting. In the Didache, it says, hypocrites, ba- <laughs> hypocrites fast on Monday and Thursday. <laughs> I don't know what they were dealing with then, but that's it. Hypocrites, they, they're the ones who baptize on the second and the fifth day, is how, they, how it says it. So Monday and Thursday. And then, it, so it could just leave it at that, but it says, you're to baptize, you're to, not baptize, fast. You're to fast on Wednesday and Friday. Okay. And while you're fasting, the model prayer that Jesus gave us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you know, that whole thing. Say that three times a day while you're fasting. That was their standard. So fasting on Wednesday and Friday, saying the model prayer three times (coughs) on each of those days. Communion. It gave specific instructions for communion. They were to give thanks, and it goes into detail about how you are to give thanks, what you are to say. But this is pretty interesting. In the early church, at least in this area where this manual was prevalent, again, we don't know the reach, it was said that communion could only be given to baptized believers. And it says we shouldn't give what is holy to the dogs. So those believers who aren't baptized were considered dogs and weren't worthy of the holy communion of bread and wine. Pretty interesting. It also goes on to talk about taking the first fruits of bread and wine and oil and the profits that you make and giving them in accordance with the commandment. It doesn't give a verse reference. It just says in accordance with the commandment. So I don't know if this is some type of tithe that was standard that they believed in. But there was some sort of idea where they were still taking their first fruits of their stuff and giving them. It had a clause in there about... It's not really, it's kind of excommunication. Barring people from fellowship if they knew that there was a dispute. If there's a person in church that has a dispute with somebody else, just don't let them come into the fellowship until they resolve it. Not a a bad rule. 
Harder to enforce these days, but not a bad rule. Kind of like that one. And then um, finally, there was just this general idea of focus on the return of Christ. You see that come up multiple times in the Didache. Jesus is coming back. You are to be holy. He is coming quickly. Allow that to make you ready for his coming. This idea that he's coming quickly anytime. Very much an emphasis in the early church. Emphasized pursuing holiness in the view that Jesus is returning soon. Okay. Well, thoughts or questions on the Didache? Yeah, a little bit, huh? Yeah. Yep, it, it exceeded scripture. You could definitely say that. It went beyond what was written. I don't think so. I'd have to go back and double check. I believe it was lost to history until the 1800s. I think it was discovered in the 1800s. I'm almost certain that was the case. And so it had influence up to the 4th, maybe 5th centuries. And then after that, it faded away, and through archaeological discoveries, they, they came across multiple copies of it. Sounds Mennonite, Jerry says. That's an interesting adjective. I thought it was Mennonite-ish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, now, questions will be more difficult for me on church history than just Bible questions. That's my disclaimer. Uh, so, because uh, I'm not an expert in church history. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So we believe Scripture teaches, and that's always the standard, right? Scripture teaches by immersion. Uh, there's an identification throughout Scripture that baptism is an identification with Christ and his death and resurrection. What gives you that picture in baptism? It's not sprinkling, it's not pouring, it's baptism by immersion, right? And you see this kind of language even in the narratives where it talks about coming out of the water. When someone got, got baptized, he came out of the water. Okay, that, that means something. We uh, only practice believer's baptism. We don't see any evidence in Scripture whatsoever that infants were treated as true members of the New Covenant community. It's only, until someone, or it's only when someone believes that someone is in the covenant with Christ. Okay. No, we, we, there's no age of accountability in Scripture. Um, but there is wisdom. Okay, now that's always difficult, right? And so we, we don't set any minimum ages or anything, and we always work with parents when the parents are believers. We work with the parents on that. Um, and we don't want to act rashly. We don't want to act foolishly, especially recognizing baptism does not save you. Okay, we don't want to say, okay, well, we need to get this child baptized. No, it can wait. It can wait. Not that we should delay obedience in a clear case. If someone's clearly a believer... This is a matter of obedience, and you need to move forward. But with a child, it can be a little more difficult. And I like to remind people, too, because the question comes up about communion naturally when we talk about baptism, because they're ordinances for the church. And in communion, um, that, again, is, is pretty much a parent's decision. Um, but we need to remember that the, we don't have a warning in the New Testament about baptizing wrongly. We do have a warning about eating communion wrongly. Okay. And so that should be treated just as seriously as baptism. I think because baptism is a one-time event, we naturally take it more seriously than communion, which is much more regular. So uh, both of those need to be protected with wisdom, but uh, in, done in faith by the parents and the child. Okay. And we don't... 
Oh, uh, yeah. We, we don't require any fasting. If you want to do it, it's great. But uh, don't go blow your trumpet and say, hey, I fasted on Wednesday and Friday. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's by immersion here, and it is adults. And with the live water, not live water, that is so such a preference thing. That is so silly that any rule would ever be made about that. That is so, 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 so silly. Yeah. Cold live water. Cold, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we're putting our little warmers in there on the trough. And uh, boy, didn't know we were sinning the whole time. All those baptisms are invalid. Redo. Uh, <laughs> it, so, it sounds photo-Catholic at some level to me. Even yeah. though they don't talk about spring. Well, it, it is interesting you mention that because the Roman Catholic Church, um, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian churches, Orthodox churches, they look back at this document and say this is an early form of church orders because they do have books of church order that they use today, right? And they look back and they say this is kind of the genesis. Like they look back at Peter and say he was the first pope, you know, same kind of thing, which is reading too much into it. I don't think that was their desire. Um, I do think they erred in their overprescription, though. So, Josh. Um, we, we don't really clearly know what this was Yeah, yeah. I mean, if this so, this was if this was one church, and this was a part of their bylaws, and they say other churches would do different, and that's fine. That yeah, that's a totally different conversation. I think there's evidence in here though that whoever authored this meant for it to be more widespread. I mean, you see that like the meat offered to idols thing. It just objectively says that's sin. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians who are dealing with all kinds of idolatry all around him, and he doesn't go that far. And so they went farther than Paul. In a, in a very idolatrous context. And so that's where it's like, okay, yeah, I think they, they pushed the gas pedal too hard. But again, at the end of the day, we just can't know for sure. It's good to keep in mind. Sarah? What's the benefit of reading it? Like, do you just put it against Scripture and say, okay, yeah. these are things that are good and then reject this other yeah. stuff? Well, I mean, I, th there are all kinds of benefits. I mean, one is just to know. Okay, we can't underestimate the blessing it is just to know things. Get wisdom, get knowledge, get understanding. And when we have something that's been preserved through history like this, and we can look back to our brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago, that's pretty cool. But, but also when you get into conversations with, um, I don't know when it would be necessarily appropriate, we could just say an intramural debate, a Baptist versus a Presbyterian on baptism. It's good to point out, hey, the early church didn't didn't baptize infants either. We don't see it in the Bible, and we don't see the early church doing that. In fact, they explicitly say it's 
you know, adults that are taking place in this, in this practice. And just to challenge our brothers on that. Because, you know, Presbyterians, they're not going to hell. Not all of them. And so, um, and, and so the, one, you know, the ones who are, are fellow believers, it's good to challenge them on that and just to learn things and uh, to, I don't know, spur one another on that way. Yes. Acts 16. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and all your household. And then they were all baptized. Yeah, that's a, that's a common one that's used as household baptisms um, to say, look, this whole household got saved. That must mean that they sprinkled babies. And to me, that is such a crazy exegetical leap. Because this is a narrative that doesn't say they baptize babies. And it's just a narrative. And so let's look at what was instructed by the same people who were involved with that event. Paul was there. Did Paul ever instruct that babies be baptized? No. Um, but did he instruct that adults be baptized? Yes, he did. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bigger conversation. It's an interesting conversation, and there have been some good debates on it. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, there is zero exegetical evidence in Scripture that any infant was ever baptized in the church. Okay, that's what I want to check Oh, yeah. Well, that's the best they got. And that's, if that's the best you got, you're in bad shape, right? Okay. All right. Let's uh, talk about Clement of Rome. Definitely need to uh, move forward a little quicker here. Clement of Rome, he was the author of an early church letter that we're going to examine. Uh, Clement was a bishop who likely had a personal relationship both with Paul and with Peter and perhaps other apostles. So, I mean, again, this is someone, this is pre-100. We're looking at a letter that was probably written 97, 98 AD, somewhere around that time. Most scholars, Christian or otherwise, date this letter to pre-100. Very few put it after 100. And what's very interesting about this is that Origen, who's a, a guy who lived in the um, later 2nd century, and Eusebius, who came along after Origen, both Origen and Eusebius say that Clement of Rome here is talked about in the New Testament. Turn with me to Philippians, the book of Philippians, chapter 4. And would someone read Philippians 4, 3? Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul had a fellow worker named Clement. I'm going to tell you up front, we have no idea who this is. We don't know who this Clement was. Clement wasn't the rarest name. It could have been all kinds of different Clements. But there are two people from the early church who say that was Clement of Rome. Could be. He was, he was alive at the time of Paul and Peter. He was born uh, in the early 30s AD. So he would have been a man in his 30s when this was written. That was Philippians 4.3. Yeah. There's a, there's a Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3. Now, I mentioned that Clement of Rome was a bishop. Bishops were local church elders who served as a first among equals type role. So you had in each church a plurality of presbyters or elders. You had that going on in each church. And there's evidence from the Didache and there's evidence from Clement's letter we're about to talk about. That was the standard. 